All right. Okay. Everybody, thank you for joining us for another Down the Hatch podcast about swallowing. I'm Ianessa Humbert, your co-host. And of course, we have our other host, Dr. Alicia Vos. We have a special guest, Dr. Phoebe McRae. And what they both have in common is that at some point I played a role in their training. Dr. Phoebe McRae is was my very first postdoc at uh, Johns Hopkins University. And uh, Dr. Alicia Vos was my very first doctoral student at the University of Florida. So I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves. The topic for today is experience-dependent plasticity. It is the second installment in our series about swallowing neurophysiology. Uh, Alicia, do you want to start out just reminding everybody who you are? Sure. So um, like Ianessa said, my name is Alicia Vos. I am a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Florida and the McKnight Brain Institute and have spent the last five years dedicated to research, but still uh, very clinically oriented research. Cool. Phoebe, you ready to go? Yeah. Hey, I'm uh, Phoebe McRae. I'm based in New Zealand. Uh, I did my training here. I grew up in New Zealand and I uh, trained to be a speech and language therapist is what we call them here. Uh, Then I did my PhD here in New Zealand and then I came over and uh, spent two years as a postdoc, like Ian Issa said. And then I moved back home after my postdoc there, and uh, I'm working for the University of Canterbury in Christchurch in New Zealand, and I'm a senior lecturer here. And my research lab is based at St. George's Hospital with Professor Maggie Lee Huckabee, and here we look at uh, any number of projects related to rehabilitation, um, swallowing neurophysiology, and my area recently, and I've got a grant to look at this as cough rehabilitation so sensory modulation stuff great we did we almost overlap yeah you were a you were a clinician there I still tell the story when I first met you as a clinician at Hopkins and you were telling me about how you'd just seen a patient who had a gunshot wound and had their highway blown off and I was like wicked I want that job (laughs) Baltimore baby the wire was real Yeah. yeah yeah lots of trauma Um, So we are all sipping a little something, some caffeinated, some alcohol. You'll know maybe in a few minutes who's drinking what, uh, because, you know, it's a different time of day. It's morning in one of our time zones and it's evening in the others. And we're going to let you guys decide who's morning and who's evening, who's drinking caffeine and who's drinking alcohol. Just to supplement that, I'm always told that it sounds like I've been drinking. So I don't think that's a fair assessment (laughs) to be making on me. (laughs) Okay, so uh, we decided that we wanted to have a podcast that is continuing in the series about swallowing neurophysiology. But the first podcast that we did last month focused on some basics about what the neuroanatomy is, what's the uh, basics related to neurophysiology. And for this podcast, we wanted to talk more about what speech pathologists may have some control over and what they may not have control over when it comes to feeding and swallowing. So it was obvious to me that the paper that we wrote together that you led um, on experience-dependent plasticity would be a great start. The title of that paper is Exploiting Experience-Dependent Plasticity in Dysphagia Rehabilitation, Current Evidence and Future Directions. It was published in the Current Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Reports in 2013. Can you believe it's been so long that this paper has been written? But we were invited to write this paper by Ruth Martin, who was one of the editors on it. And it really goes into rehabilitation, exploiting experience-dependent plasticity, and where the literature is right now. And I'll let everybody know that we will post a link to this paper so you can read the full text at your leisure. So I hoped that you could start this podcast out by telling us what the gist of this paper was, what were we, what was the main message that we were trying to share with everybody? Define experience-dependent plasticity as a way to to, uh, to jump off this topic. Sure. Well, you just did most of that, but I'll I'll flesh that out a little. Um, experience-dependent plasticity is, if you break it down, plasticity is just changes essentially. So you can have changes anywhere. You can have, as you mentioned, neural plasticity. So you've got central changes related to the brain or um, any of our nervous system 
And you can also have changes related to behavioral stuff. So the way that you execute things, physiology, kinematics, um, differences in how we, how we actually execute something. So experience dependent plasticity is just describing changes that come about either neural or behavioral um, because of what we experience. And as you mentioned, there are two forms or two broad categories of things that we can experience. And they are things that happen because of internal or endogenous factors like aging or injury, um, or they can occur because of exogenous or external factors that manipulate our experience. So uh, if we think about treatments or um, exercise, yeah, exercise, those types of things. So things that affect how we execute things because of what we're experiencing. So plasticity, experience-dependent plasticity is just describing those changes associated with experience. And just so everybody understands, this is a paper that is focused on experience-dependent plasticity in swallowing. So we think that this is specifically interesting for clinicians because this is what speech pathologists have some control over. You have control and sometimes complete control over what a patient experiences when it comes to eating, especially at a time that there are endogenous things happening because they are in your facility because perhaps they've had a stroke or they've had some structures removed because of head and neck cancer, or perhaps they're frail and very old. So that we have the endogenous things that are happening, therefore you're called in and perhaps you are influencing their system with the exogenous experiences you decide for them um, based on the diet and the therapies you prescribe, et cetera. Leesh, did you have anything to say? So I was just curious, just to kind of elaborate on that, the um, exogenous plasticity I think is relevant in swallowing. And I just want to clarify, would you consider swallowing ex swallowing itself to be an exogenous example of plasticity in terms of just the act of swallowing itself is an experience that we can actually manipulate, right? By telling patients what they can and cannot eat, how frequently they eat, um, what, you know, whether they're NPO, things like that. I think that's something that's highly relevant in probably our field in terms of that type of experience that we manipulate. Now, you could argue whether we should have the power to even make those types of decisions or not. But regardless of that, um, you know, I, I hear this phrase all the time, which is, you know, the best exercise for swallowing is swallowing. So when you're talking about that experience of just even just the act of swallowing, would you consider that exogenous? Phoebe, do you have thoughts? I, yeah, I or endogenous, I, you know? I, yeah, I think it's I would say it's endogenous. And it's possibly, you know, not that we want to get caught up in terms here, but it's probably manipulating that endogenous experience. So we're putting restrictions on what what they eat or how often they're eating. And I think that endogenous experience of eating is certainly something that is a, an important thing. And, and I guess then you run into the issues of what we don't know well is what if you're if you're swallowing is impaired, right? So what you're doing frequently, even if you're saying you know you're NPO they're still going to be attempting swallows, right? They're going to be trying to swallow down saliva or um, all sorts of different things. But you, with, if you're practicing and repeating it, a, a broken sequence of events, if you like, what that means compared with if you are practicing a, a sound and a solid set of um, set of movements. And I think we assume we always go to the point, well, if it's broken, we don't want them doing it. But you know, what we see is, I think it's, we started talking about this last week and maybe we'll get back there, but, oh no, actually it was in your previous podcast where you're talking about how babies start to adapt to new textures, right? They gag and they do these things that look like it's wrong and look like it shouldn't be happening, but actually that's the process they have to go through to learn and correct for those errors. And so we, you know, we see people aspirating and we say, right, stop doing whatever's making you aspirate. Um, stop doing whatever looks broken and so we remove the experience of going through that broken sequence and then potentially limiting the chance to experience the things that are needed to correct that error I mean I don't know this is all just me 
but I, I think there's pretty good pretty good things to think about it in that in that light um i will yeah. go ahead alicia i was just gonna say i mean i just feel like it begs saying even though it seems so obvious but when you talk about plasticity to me it almost just assumes the experience aspect right like we can call it experience dependent plasticity but plasticity in and of itself is dependent upon change based on a prior experience right but with that you have to have an experience right and i i know that sounds so stupid it's like well obviously but it it really is relevant in our field because i think sometimes we're in a business of taking experiences away without thinking about the consequences of that um and to really make meaningful changes that are harnessing neuroplasticity, you have to be able to provide the experience for those neural networks to change, whether it's exogenous or endogenous. I think before we even get there, it's like the system needs the information fed to it in order to figure out how to change based on that experience. So obviously this like I get on my soapbox about this frequently in this podcast, but I just think it's so important to really like ground ourselves and think about that, that if patients aren't eating, you're taking away their ability to have those types of experiences. And I think um, it's just something to bear in mind. I know we'll probably talk about it more as we go on, but. um, So what you're saying is the lack of an experience is an experience when it comes to a behavior that's essential to maintain by experience, right? So, you know, plasticity can be good or bad. Say it again. Plasticity, of course. It's like Phoebe alluded to the idea that you could be training something that's actually bad, which we call maladaptive behaviors. But the idea is the word adaptive in that speaks to adaptive plasticity learning. They all speak to the idea that there's a time course and the redundant experience or redundant stimuli lead to a change over time. It can be short-term, which is not plasticity, like short-term error-based learning adaptation, or it can be long-term, which is what plasticity is. It has to actually be a long-term change for it to be that. Um, so what we are, what we're saying is that we need to be mindful. Actually, I'll read this. It's a good time to read the quote. Then I'll open it up for thoughts you guys have. But there's a quote from the article, which is exogenously induced experience dependent plasticity involves the manipulation of experiences and environments to induce learning and plasticity processes. The most complex hurdle in characterizing experience dependent plasticity is understanding how multiple co-occurring forms of experience-dependent plasticity interact and affect functional outcomes. So I think that what we're saying here is you almost can't separate what is intrinsic, such as aging over time, because it's not like you wake up one morning, you're like, oh my God, my swallow is 50 milliseconds short, short longer. We don't have that. We just notice people say, gosh, you know, I just feel like um, at night I, I wake up choking a bit more. Or I notice that if I don't chew my food properly, I choke a little bit more. And they just gradually change as their body changes. But in the same time, they're then changing their food exp- food uh, that they're eating, because, which changes their experience. So it's, so it's sort of like the chicken or the egg, which a lot of rehab physicians I've talked to at Hopkins would say, did they break their hip and fall or did they fall and break their hip? And it's hard to know, was it the experience or was it the the, the system that broke? I think, you know, to, and I can get lost down so many rabbit holes in here. So just tell me if I'm going way too abstract. But I feel, you know, when we look at, I think there's experience as clinicians, we tend to focus on the impairment level stuff, right? Which makes sense because when that's broken, it's the bit that is really going to halt progress. But I think we need to look at it in a more holistic way in terms of, you know, we see experience dependent plasticity right the way through recovery or rehabilitation. And it all plays a point. You know, I think about patients and that we've seen who you get them past the impairment level stuff, you know, they're safe to eat and drink, but they don't ever eat and drink in crowds or, you know, public places anymore because they still have that fear. So yes, they're swallowing at an impairment level is better, but they're still not 
they're not engaging in that experience because they haven't, you know, if, if part of our treatment was right now, we're going to move to a cafe and we're going to have something to eat and drink here. We're going to go through that experience and change the way you process or the way you carry out actually eating and drinking in that scenario. That's another experience that changes your whole progression through that rehab process. And I know that, that that's the functional side of things, you know, and I think that's, if you think about that in a, in a smaller way, that's kind of what's happening at the impairment level too, that we need to go through all those experiences and, and find the pitfalls and the bits that trip us up or our patients up, experience them. How do we deal with them? How do we fix those for getting a functional result? Um, Alicia, did you have something to say? Because I wanted to bring up something along the lines of something that we all talked about last week. Um, so this quote I thought was the interesting part in terms of the intersection between the two. Um, so in, even in, for the most common and well-studied etiology of dysphagia, we lack a sound understanding of the naturally occurring changes that result from the experience of impaired swallowing. This is largely, largely because treating patients identified with dysphagia is rightfully a far greater priority than studying natural experience dependent plasticity processes, meaning what would happen if we just let their body try to recover on its own and we didn't get involved and hope that spontaneous recovery helps. Um, however, I'll continue, the need to treat has been determined without convincing evidence that exogenously induced experience dependent plasticity is superior to endogenously induced experience dependent plasticity. Determining the benefit of treatment over no treatment treatment is restricted by number of factors. So if I had to, you know what, Phoebe, we wrote this so many years ago. I'm like, we wrote that? Now I'm like, what the hell was I talking about? No, <laughs> but if I had to, if I had to try to figure out what we were talking about a few years ago, many years, 10 years ago, whenever that was, um, I would suggest that what we're saying is we always have to remember that the body is doing something, whether we get involved or not. And we yep. don't always know what the body's doing in response to this problem. Um, obviously, this idea of let's see if the body fixes itself makes sense in circumstances where there's development. Like, well, let's wait and see if Johnny ever gets S on his own. Then we'll see if we need a speech therapist. Or in the ex experience where maybe there's trauma or an acute event like a traumatic brain injury or stroke where we know there is some spontaneous recovery. Obviously, bilateral innovation. Exactly. Say that one more time. Wait, actually. Bilateral innovation, like with swallowing is so plastic. Just exactly. Well designed, right? Exactly. We're not so much really thinking about people who've been newly like diagnosed with a neurodegenerative disease, which we know will take them down, for instance. Um, but we do know, however, that we are not sure what trajectory somebody's going to have an improvement. And we assume that if we layer on these experience dependent, these experiences that we're giving them as clinicians, it's going to facilitate perhaps a deeper a steeper trajectory to improve but truly if we don't even know what their natural trajectory would be because we are compelled to do therapy we don't know if we are doing exactly what the system is going to do anyway if we're flattening it because the experiences are now um, competing with what the body wants to do or if we're in fact facilitating it and we're not suggesting that you don't treat your patients what we're saying is if you understand how complicated the system is you would be very clear that you are only a very small part in this giant role of swallowing. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point and something to keep, you know, when we, when I read papers on rehab techniques and in the back of my mind, I just always have this, we think we have it sorted largely, you know, we kind of, we know for the most part what's involved in the, neural control of swallowing you know we know the biomechanics and the kinematics right we're going to fix this piece of it it's like the brain is so complex and swallowing is so complex complex we can't if even brain, if the brain could can, talk don't you think it would be like who the fuck do you think you yeah. are like i know yeah what to do here okay you know what you guys are reminding me of like a month ago when Nigel, my youngest son, who's 13, woke up and there was something like his eye was draining or something like that. He goes, why is my eye draining? Of course, the nerd I am, I went on and on about the lacrimal gland and all this and stuff. He goes, so wait a minute, it could be my brain that's telling my eye to water. I said, yeah. And he goes, you know what's so weird? I can't even ask my own brain what it's doing 
That is so strange. My brain, <laughs> the part of my brain that wants to know what's happening is right next to the part that's doing it. And I can't even ask it. I'm like, exactly. That's why I have a job. Yeah. It, it makes me think of a patient we had here recently. And he is a pretty young guy. And he had a cerebellopontine angled tumor that was resected. And he had, he was, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, he was majorly impaired swallowing wise. He was hugely impaired. He basically took rehabilitation into his own hands for the first probably four weeks of his after his surgery and he was nobody was touching him for rehab like he was not in a space to do that he said his wife thought he was absolutely crazy because he would sit there all day and take a sip of something swallow it down cough choke basically vomited out he said i just kept chewing things swallowing it down and regurgitating he couldn't swallow he had like an absent ability to to get anything down he said he just did it non-stop he said I had no idea if it was going to change I had no idea if I was ever going to get to the point where I could and he said and then it just started to go down and so even within you know we don't touch people rehabilitation wise what that outcome can be because of you know endogenous experience dependent plasticity can be totally different because if he sat there in his bed and did nothing yeah. I guarantee you he'd look totally different to us when he arrived here than what he did. A hundred percent. I mean, the system, the body wants to correct itself, but it needs a ton of experience to figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. It has to have that. It has to have that constant sensory feedback to say, nope, that didn't work. That didn't work. Try it again. Feed, like Just keep overloading the system, challenge the system so it knows how to reorganize. Yeah. And if we take that away, like who are we to think, well, if I just do these masakos three times a day, 10 times, that will be the answer. It's like, isn't it kind of, you know, it's naive, naive, but it's also like, there's a lot of hubris in that of just like, who do we think we are to know how to tell the system how to reorganize itself and that we have the answers. It's like, you have to let the body take over some control and that it knows what it's doing when it comes to the reorganization. And our job is to provide the experiences in the way, in the best way possible to, to enhance that and to allow that to happen. So I have a couple of uh, points on what you guys just said. You were just talking about um, uh, this guy doing these things. And I thought what's really interesting there is that we kind of um, have to think about if you guys have ever had a computer that's not working properly, right? And like you said, the system's trying to fix itself. It's almost like a reboot. Sometimes we restart our computer to say, let's just take a nap, wake up again, and see if tomorrow morning it's fine, except it's, you know, a few seconds to reboot your computer. But when it's really bad and you have to call in the help, aka the SLP, but it's really the IT, they often say, hold down this key during the reboot. So with the reboot itself that the computer wants to do is not enough. You have to help it by holding down the T or the C and you'll get a special thing where it looks for viruses so you can figure out what's going on. That's almost what it's like if there's a reboot with the right experiences so you can sort of target the specific problem that 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 system is having. But it's not all the clinician's job when you said, who are we to think that we could do this? The clinician is basically oftentimes looking at the literature and saying, well, the literature says that if I do this EMST or if I do this lingual strengthening, blah, blah, blah. So the question now is, what does the literature say about experience-dependent plasticity? And so that is the second half of this paper, which is what are the what does the literature guide us well enough so clinicians can know what to do? And I'm going to read this other quote because clearly I am the sermon producer here by reading scripture. Here we go. One key component for examining experience-dependent plasticity is time. In many studies that investigate the effect of experiences on plasticity or learning, a structure or function is is examined over time to document the process of change. The duration of examination depends on the outcome variable that is being tested, like hand movement versus neuronal growth, for instance, aspiration versus duration of laryngeal vestibular closure, as an example. And the issue that we had with this, where we actually have a table with all the papers, is that we have a couple of styles of studies. And because the style of study, we really can't get at whether experience-dependent plasticity is actually possible with therapy. And that's because oftentimes the studies aren't long enough. They don't provide both 
physiological and functional data. And what we mean by that is physiological stuff is like, what's the larynx doing? What's the pharynx doing? What's the tongue doing? And on top of that, what's the bolus flow issue? So meaning, what's the tongue doing? What's the pharynx doing? And is there residue? Is there um, aspiration and on top of that? Many studies do one or the other. Very few studies actually tell you both, even though that's what we care about as swallowing experts. We want to see the physiology's impact on bolus flow, yet many studies don't give you both. Or they do a pre-post design, like before this was their baseline. Then they had eight weeks of blah, 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 and afterward they did or didn't change. Well, we don't know what happened over a time course. We have two different time points, and we assume that something in that black box moment in the middle is responsible for what came out at the other end. It's like I ate this food and there were corn kernels in my poop. I wonder, oh, that's right, I had corn. This is exactly what- Or I what, didn't, and that just mysteriously is. Or, or, God, I don't remember eating corn. Why are there corn kernels in my poop? Well, you would have to be able to track the food from before your mouth and through your system and in the toilet. That's what would have to happen, but we don't have studies that do that. I'm not saying research is shit. I'm saying, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was using the ingestion, digestion, swallowing thing, not our research is shit at all. I would never I, do that because I contribute I to that say. problem too. <laughs> yeah, and, and I wanted to jump in here and say, rather than the take home message of this being all research is shit, it's, it's a very hard task mm -hmm. to measure multiple time points with functional and physiologic outcome measures. Like that's a massive task. And, and especially if you're doing like a treatment study and patients, that's just, nobody's going there, right? Right. Um, but it, it highlights the issue that we need to start plugging some of those gaps because, you know, when we look at the, re the reason I'm so passionate about the fact that we need to know not just physiologic measures in isolation or functional measures in isolation we need to know both because if we see that patients aspirate less after a certain treatment great right you know functionally that's that's a really good thing but if we don't know why that's changed we don't know who we who that's best suited for right so we need the physiologic measures if we see you know we see a lot of papers that have you know hyoid excursion increased by 1.5 millimeters brilliant or laryngeal vestibule duration closure increased by 0.9 seconds like fantastic is it do we know that that actually makes any difference to patient ingestion and safety of patient ingestion without saying these people are getting less aspiration pneumonia or these people's ability to tolerate x y and z is improved so you need the two together um yep. but as I said, that's a mammoth undertaking. And so I don't know, Phoebe, if I agree with you that it's a mammoth undertaking because it's all in the same floral. You just decided fairly, if I'm being fair, if, okay, if I just take your examples of the things you suggested, mm -hmm. I'm not going to go to other examples. You talked sure. about hyoid movement, for instance, and you talked about lower vestibule closure. Right next to it is the bolus coming down. So yeah. it's not a massive task to add that to the list of things you study because that's what actually people care about. We only care about swallowing to the extent that there are people who have swallowing problems for the most part. I know there's signs for signs take, and I get yeah. that. But- Yep. In studies where they can tell you what these what these radiographic outcomes are, the bolus is sitting right there. So I'm I'm all for or the reverse, which is they told you about all the aspiration, but the physiology responsible was in that same video clip that they pulled the aspiration from. They just didn't bother to report it. One and two, the scientific process failed because the review commit the reviewers didn't say, but why did this happen? You need to give us physiology. Well, it wasn't the scope of our of our paper. It should have been the scope of your paper. I agree with Absolutely. you, however, that a long time course following someone for six months, that is very expensive and hard to do. But even if you do a cross-sectional study where you jump in suddenly, all the data are there. And in fact, you can go back and post hoc analyze those data. I agree. I, I guess for me, I feel like looking at aspiration at the time in a fluoro is, yes, it is one level of functional measure, but to me, it's kind of a it's a low grade measure. It's assuming that those three swallows you're measuring on fluoro reflect everything that this person's doing in their ingestive life. Uh, so yeah, it's better than nothing for sure. But for me, some type of overall picture of is this person's dysphagia and how it's influencing their ability to eat in their life. That to me is the functional stuff that we give 
patients rehabilitation techniques to address with without knowing really how much well, it's, it's another level i get they, it i get it now you're talking about a life function not in that swallow where did the bolus go regardless yeah. of what they care yeah, about they, as a person yeah, they, got they, it and this is me just making up numbers but if this person has breaks 80 percent of their boluses did did we just catch three swallows where yeah they penetrated a little bit of one and that's actually quite standard the other if we if we screened them for 50 more swallows, we'd see them aspirate bucket loads. Yeah. Who knows? Leash, were you going to say something? Probably. I feel like I'm always just waiting to say something. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, I think that it's challenging because I think as therapists, we have this bias towards wanting we're almost like mechanics right we have this bias towards wanting to go in and fix things and compartmentalize things um so if they have an lvc issue right like then we just want to break down the lvc and and i'm guilty of this too right because i love this mechanism so i want to analyze it and figure out exactly what's going on sometimes you know the closer we break the or the the further we break things down and the more we our lens is like going further and further in and, and isolating this one impairment, we lose sight of the the big picture, right? And I think, Phoebe, I think that's what you're speaking to is that we need to be able to hone in on impairment, but we need to be able to step back out as well and consider the experience and consider these functional outcomes and consider the whole, um, how, the whole how their experiences are influencing that micro aspect of their swallowing impairment because I think that I think it can change dramatically um, depending on how we're looking at the swallow and what the experience is at the time that we're looking at it um, I think you made you made a really good point when you said you know because when we're talking about we assume that we know what we're doing or you know the brain's probably like what the hell are you thinking you you said a key point, which is what is the best type of experience for functional recovery? You know, like, is it, is it what we're doing or is it doing nothing or is it what the patient might do? And I think, and to, you know, rather than, I feel like if I was a clinician listening to this, I'd think, well, what the hell do I do now? Like, you know, <laughs> you know, if, if doing it over and over is going to work, do I give somebody Masako for, 18 weeks, you know, 50 times a day, is that what it needs? Or is it, I don't touch them. And I think we don't know that yet. And so that's why it's such a confusing picture. We don't know the best experience because it's so hard to pull that all apart. You know, like this guy who I'm talking about, this patient who came to us and when we fluoroed him, he had, we were like, wow, that that is an amazingly functional swallow for somebody who A, could not swallow for like four months and had the extensive level of damage that he did, he's basically rehabbed himself for the most part when he got to us. But, you, you know, you can't go into a, a patient who's just gone through this who cannot swallow. You could, but you'd get in a lot of trouble. You couldn't go in there and say, right now, I want you to try and swallow like 200 times a day. Choke, cough, splutter, aspirate, yeah. do whatever. That's what your job is for the next four weeks. You can't pull that off, right? It's because he took that on himself and he gave it a go. And it's like, that gives us information. That's the only way to rehab. So I think of swallowing a lot like machine learning. And if you're not familiar with machine learning, machine learning is really just a study of computer algorithms. And what it does is it to improve automaticity, you improve automaticity through experience. So basically in a computer, you build an algorithm by giving the computer a shitload of data saying, when this happens, you do this. When this happens, you do this. And you just, you give it a shitload of data. And based on that, the computer is able to make predictions based on all of this data that it's already received. It says, okay, based on all of this data, now I know I can, I can make certain predictions based on that. And to me, that's what it is in swallowing therapy, which is if we can provide the patient with as much experience as possible, then the system does such a much better job of predicting what the accurate outcome should be. So in that example with that patient, he was basically the computer, right? For lack of a better His term, brain. giving himself as much data as possible. And the system was able to have all of these experience, all this sensory information, all of this error-based learning 
to be able to figure out the pathways that were right. Because every time he swallowed, he got an outcome, right? The system was able to update itself and said, oh, okay, when I do this, this happens. When I do this, this happens constantly, constantly, constantly to finally a point where the system was probably like, I have so much data now. Now I kind of know what to do and how to correct for these errors. So there's something that you guys have been talking about that made me think we need to talk a little bit about development because and your your example was perfect. It just it was a perfect segue because when we were all at Hopkins, Rebecca German said to me she studies baby pigs and so she's interested in pediatric dysphagia related issues. And so she said, hey, at Kennedy Krieger, I've been asked to go over there and talk to a lot of the researchers who have a particular issue with um, patients that are described as the following. These are babies that were born with perfectly fine capacities to swallow. However, because of their significant issues with their cardiovascular system, whatever the situation was, they were they could not allow them to eat by mouth. But their ability to eat by mouth would have been fine. So they immediately got um, uh, bolus feeds through a peg tube the second they were born because they knew that what they knew in utero that they were going to have to have these extensive surgeries. And they just wanted to be able to bypass any issue with feeding that might impact their heart. And as a result, now they're two, they haven't had anything by mouth. And a clinician will walk in the room with a tray of food and they will throw up at the sight of it. And what happened to these babies is they didn't have the experience with all that oral exploration that they crave. You know, you're constantly telling your kids, take it out of your mouth, take it out of your mouth. There's a reason they're exploring with their oral cavities for such a long time. And it actually helps them, according to these people who are have, have been studying us, to be less orally defensive with food because food is good, book is bad, right? But they haven't had any experience with any of that to save their lives. So they're trying to figure out, can we come in and help these work with these clinicians and scientists on the feeding end? Because they've had no experience during the time, during that window when it was critical to have these experiences. So it brings you to those studies on kittens where there's that period where your retina are supposed to appreciate light. They actually, I think they tape the eyes closed. And if it happens during those critical periods, right when those kittens were born, they were basically you know, blind or had significant visual ish, uh, uh, deficiencies because at the period in development when they were supposed to have these experiences, they didn't. And a lot of people say to their friends, were you dropped on your head as a baby? Did somebody not love you? Because you had some weird stuff at a critical time in your life where that impacts your adulthood because you didn't have these experiences. So now what I try to do in courses where they the clinicians are afraid to give somebody food, I say, well, we understand the importance of experience. I mean, if a child is developmentally delayed, developmentally delayed, we throw them in a white room with no sound, no vision, and no human contact for five years, right? And everybody looks at me like, what the hell kind of SLP are you? I'm like, well, that's the, that's the idea that you're putting on these adults that they don't need any experience at all. Why are you looking at me crazy? That's what we would do to a child. And like, of course we wouldn't. They need the, ah, they need enriched experience. In fact, that's what early, um, what do they call it? Early, early, early enrichment, early, you know, like the, well, they're that, the, where they interact with kids early, they call it early something. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm- I do, yeah, I don't know the phrase that you're anyway. Of. It's just basically um, getting to kids early who look like they're going to have some issues. Oh, early intervention, early intervention, oh. early intervention. Oh my god, what no, kind no, of no. SLPs are we? We know we're like mean length utterance. Is that like a major yeah, league baseball? Just, yeah, Brown. early Thank intervention you. is a thing because we know we got to get in there early. You guys are, how, do we know who's been drinking? Clearly, I've been having the caffeine, you guys have been having the wine. <laughs> so I just interesting think, though it's like why can't we approach pa- patients the way we approach our kids you know it's like at because some point, we have jobs where we can get sued by adults yeah yeah well it's, true, gonna, but it's like, the fear it is the fear and it's, it's you know and, and in america i think that's way worse than it is here but we're still fearful it's true i mean at some point i had to give certain foods to my, my son who's two almost two hudson and say you gotta figure this out right Don't like lie, he, he was, every food he's eaten was the he's had it the first time right and there was every time there's that risk that he's not going to be able to manage it but you have to give them that experience and the reason why you do is like he can eat anything now he's two he puts everything in his mouth and he eats fine but only because we had to weigh that risk benefit 
so that and, he could have the ability to eat. And I, we have to approach our patients the same way of like, you can't take that away from them out of fear. You have to just allow them the opportunity to learn. But to and be fair, to- a woman who knows that she wants her child or a man who knows that he wants his child or parents um, to have certain experiences, like maybe they get their heart broken. They don't go, well, you're just never going to love again, hun. They say, look, this is part of life. It's different because they live through it. But when you have analogies, I've missed your analogies. (laughs) (laughs) It takes me like five minutes to catch up on what the analogy is. Aspirates, and I say, that's life, motherfucker. Just kidding. And do you know what, Alicia, you, you just made me think of, everybody can probably relate to this, like everybody listening who has children can probably relate to this. Your second child eats foods way quicker than what your first child did. And you know why? Because you don't have the time to give a shit the second time around. And so their experience is totally different. Nina's eating whole carrots in the bath on her own. She's like, <laughs> she's got it sorted. <laughs> Harry wouldn't have done that ever because I didn't, I was too scared to try it. I'm like, I've got a good one. This one, I'll take the risk. Oh, yeah. Because it's experience. You treat, you give them different experiences based on your fear or your knowledge. And I think, you know, it's that's why this, this conversation about experience is really important because I've got really good friends who don't feed their kids whole grapes at age four. They'll cut them in half because... Age four? Why? Yeah, four? Why take the risk? No, but, you know, you let, we're talking, we're saying, what do you mean? It's basically child abuse. Not if you don't know. <laughs> Neglect. Not that. Not if you don't know that the experience of a whole grape is how you learn how to take a whole grape. They just think, why would I ever take that risk until they're basically 15? So I get that. I get that thinking. This, this you will be You'll be getting a girl pregnant before you're eating a whole grape. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> you'll have an STD before you eat a whole grape or a fajola. <laughs> In, in New Zealand. Oh my God. Wait, so let me ask you guys this question. So, <clears throat> real talk. If you were the Up patient, until now, we've just been shitting around, but here it comes. I love, I love that I can see you rolling your eyes at me. <laughs> okay. If you're the patient, though, that had the CPA angle tumor, right? Would you not do the same exact thing as that patient? And just. I'm so sick you asked this. I'm so like, glad on, honestly, would you, what would you do differently? Would you do the same thing? Would you not be eating everything, choking yourself to death, trying to just know what you know about plasticity in rehab? I would be knowing what I know about plasticity. You tapped into it. But I think, I think about a clinician standing next to him going in the same way he said he did and his wife did, yeah. is this going to work or am I just basically flogging a dead horse like am I going to keep doing this until I just lose interest because it's six months down the track and it's never going to work you don't have a guarantee of what's going to happen he keep doing it keep doing it thankfully it ended in functional swallowing that he could actually manage and and he's definitely not he's not got normal ingestion right he he cannot swallow when he's tired he has to do, you know, very focused. He can't be thinking about anything else, right? So he's still impaired, but he's getting stuff down and he's getting enough down to maintain nutrition and hydration. I certainly would do the same thing. But if I'm like my friend who won't give her four-year-old whole grapes, no way. Your, I ain't friend, your friend is not going to be an SLP issue because we can't have that. <laughs> hey, but, but Leash, do you remember Jim in that podcast? Yeah. What did he say? He said the SLP told not to eat. He took it upon himself. He goes, I was at my house or wherever. And he goes, if I don't start eating, I'm never going to, if I don't start swallowing, I'm never going to swallow. So he said he started taking sips and trying to swallow and just putting things back there. And he went back to her and he said, I think I felt a swallow. And she goes, no, you didn't. Yeah. Come on, yeah. man. This is yeah, but you know, I think I I I I do understand the perspective. Of, it's just information and knowledge about the experience matters, right? The experience yeah. totally matters. I get why it doesn't happen, and I get why you know you have to make sure everything else is fine. Like, make sure you've got really clean teeth and you've been cleaning the crap out of your mouth before you go and shove stuff down into your lungs. Like, you need you, you need to be pretty mobile. You and having have a cough helps. LPD. Yeah. So it's like, there are all these caveats to it, but, but the overarching thing is the experience of that 
with no therapy could have given him that intensive experience of you know he did it that was also there's no scenario there's nobody that can provide that amount of time like even even in the best case scenario if you're the richest person on earth right i mean it, and, so much of it is in the patient's hands and, also and they don't, don't know that don't tell me that if you were there with him for four weeks and he is choking, vomiting every time you're in there, like 15 times a day, like to, you're going to start doubting what you're doing, right? You're going to be like, mm, this is the best thing to do. Like we've got the outcome. So we know that was good. But I think if you're in it and if you're a clinician oh, at the yeah. side of that, you go, shit, I'm not sure. Well, yeah. okay. Also guys, think about some of the principles of neuroplasticity. It's use it or lose it. So he's getting that. There's repetition. He's getting that. There's motivation. He's getting that. There's salience and specificity. He's getting all of those things. All yeah. of these principles of neuroplasticity, meaning you have to do a lot of trials you have to be motivated. You have to be doing a trial relative to the thing that actually is the issue. He wasn't he wasn't chomping on a, a wood block. He was swallowing. Yeah. He was getting the sensory information and his brain was going, oh, that was bad. Oh, just like you said, machine learning. This was good. Okay, do more of that. Don't do that again. Yeah. And all the while, his peripheral and central nervous system are constantly interacting and say, okay, this is good. This is not good. You couldn't beat that with a stick as a speech pathologist. So, sure. you know, it's almost like, you don't give them bad advice, but Phoebe, this is a great example of saying, you know, when you see those reports that say, so-and-so will try thin liquids only with SLP president, like present, like, what are you going to be like, open the gateway? Are you going to put like a little net under his epiglottis and catch the thin liquid when you're there, but it's not there when I'm not there? Like, what does that mean only when you're there? All you're doing going to do is count coughs. So I wouldn't discourage certain patients from experiencing it on their own. And saying only when SLP present, because you make it sound like you have some magical way about the way they're going to swallow that thin liquid versus if they did it on their own without you watching them, which is also unnatural. Yeah. Yeah. You said something that made me think of something and now it's gone. That's what happens when you're close to 40. <laughs> I know. I just turned 44 Ooh. and stuff is gone. It's I have no when you're close to 40, but you don't look a day over 30. <laughs> You can edit that out. <laughs> no, it's staying in because people need to know what I had to deal <laughs> with for for two and a half years, people. I dealt with that. Uh, you want to talk about what you had to do with water, water. <laughs> you think what? about how often you say water in a dysphagia lab and every time I'd say it, I'd hear this cackle and it's like, water, because, water. Because you would then try to imitate us and go, water. That's what you guys sound like. You guys sound like this, water. <laughs> and he'd be like, water. I'm like, this is crazy. That ah is extra. Uh, oh my god! There was something about oh, there was another point in this paper which I feel like we we did we did a good job of sounding like we were onto it here, <laughs> but there was um, there was a point here which when we're talking about measuring performance or or taking measures of patients and and studies and any you know clinical case studies, single case studies, that kind of thing, where we're looking at multiple time points and why that's important. And, you know, we've talked about the long-term stuff and why that's important, but there's this, I should actually try and find it, but in the paper, we talk about that often the factors that result in the best performance. So when I say performance, that's when you're actually doing whatever it is that you're measuring. So if I'm doing an effort full swallow, for example, my tongue pressure is much higher than when I'm doing a regular swallow. So performance at the time of executing an effort full swallow. There are studies in wider literature, like limb literature, to suggest that the factors that create the best performance are often not the factors that create the best lasting learned ah, results, right? So, now. yeah, so that to me was really interesting because a lot of our studies, as you can see on the table there, show that we measure what's happening at the time of executing a masako or an effortful swallow or, you know, this is what happens to the hyoid. Therefore, if we do it over and over and over and over, we're going to get the hyoid doing this when you're not doing that action. It's like, we assume that, but without measuring that, actually, a lot of literature from physio world suggests that's not the truth. And I think of your paper that I don't, I'm, it's an Eastern paper. I know what paper. you're going to, oh, wait, go ahead. Yeah, where, where, you know, you showed 
we're pulling the larynx down. You don't want that when you're swallowing. But what do you do long term when you're swallowing against that resistance actually ends up facilitating the movement that you want. So it's kind of going in the opposite. And that to me highlights that difference in performance versus long term learned outcomes that during the swallow, this larynx is way lower than you want it to be. But when you stop it, you've got a much better result because you challenged the system. But it goes speak to papers that you guys were both on and that Hanada was the first author on, which is we train people to volitionally prolong laryngovestibule closure. That's what we trained them to do on fluoro. We even had uh, studies where they got financial compensation if they can prolong their laryngovestibule closure. And then we'd say, stop doing this. Stop doing this behavior. Now just swallow normally. And we assumed that after doing so many of those prolonged laryngeal vestibule closure movements, that would be the behavior that transferred to these, quote, natural swallows, where we said, don't do anything special, just swallow this water. And it never transferred. What transferred was they learned to close their larynx faster, even though that's not the thing we told them to do. So you, you're right. You, what we were measuring and focusing was duration of laryngovestibule closure, not time to close being faster. Now, it's a good thing that we didn't train them on a bad thing. But what if we had been, there were other maladaptive things that they had to generate in order to do the task that we told them they were getting money for, or that was the goal of the study. Sometimes there are, you know, as many bad things that people have to do to get to the good thing, and we're not measuring those things. And that's what they actually end up doing long term. Hmm. You know, I think other examples, and this kind of thing fascinates me with, you know, tongue hold swallows, that while you're doing it, you are anchoring the tongue forward, you're reducing that contact between the posterior pharyngeal wall and the base of tongue. And so you're recruiting, you know, I theoretically this is the deal, but you know, whatever happens actually happens. The posterior pharyngeal wall starts to become more active so that then when you swallow normally, you get a difference. So your actual performance, if you are measuring performance of this pressure, you've got reduced pressure because you're anchoring the tongue forward, but that results in theoretically a longer term benefit because you've challenged that system Mm -hmm. and I think that's that and I say this just to highlight the point and we do a lot of pre and post which is good we need to know what happens after a treatment but unless we know how it got there and and what the mechanisms behind that change were again we don't really know what we're doing we just kind of throw the other other aspect of that is every all of these structures and muscles are so interrelated and there's so many compensatory mechanisms that are happening that when I see these types of studies, take your example, the Masako, right? You're anchoring the tongue and you're looking at the pharynx. So often in these studies, when they are looking at, say in the best case scenario, they're looking at physiology and they're looking at bolus outcomes. They're, they're still only measuring the tongue and the pharynx without considering what are the other mechanisms that are happening to compensate for that? What's the larynx doing? Is pharyngeal shortening happening? Yeah. Is the the pharynx shortening? Is the UES staying open longer? There's so many other compensations that are happening to get to the same end result, but we're not looking at those things. Like I, it just drives me nuts if I can just get on another soapbox when researchers or clinicians or anybody, they just isolate a certain aspect of the swallow. They pick out this one thing that I want to look at. I just want to look at how the hyoid is moving. Well, it's, it's irrelevant. You have to look. You have to look at the whole system and how all of the mechanisms are compensating and um, working with each other and interacting. Because otherwise, we we have such an incomplete picture of how the system is actually compensating to get to the same end goal. Yeah, and I think you you run the risk of you know you don't find what you're not looking for, and it's the same as you know when you're doing a literature search and you can read the background for a paper and it's like oh it's weird all of this literature seems to support exactly what you're doing. It's like you need to balance what else might be happening that doesn't support what you're doing. And it reminds me of when I started my masters and we were doing an EEG study, and we were finding this obscure potential on the scalp and before a swallow. And it looked beautiful and we were kind of shocked that it looked so beautiful because it's so hard to get. Well, then we placed electrodes everywhere and that same potential is all over the head. It's like, oh no, it's just because we put it there expecting to see it there. We thought we did. It was actually just this drift and this artifact, but we didn't know that until we looked right over the skull. But it's like, so you don't, if you're just looking at the one thing you want to see change, 
if it changes, you don't know whether, like you, you say, you don't know whether there's some other. You don't know where it fits in this complex net network of things, right? Yeah. And it's I the drunk. It's the drunkard search. You know this like story, right? The drunkard search principle. You heard of this? No. It's, it's this is swallowing to a T. So it's it's short, but it, basically how it goes is a policeman sees a drunk guy. He's out searching for something under a streetlight, and he asks the drunk what he's lost, and he says that he lost his keys. So they're both looking under the streetlight together. And after a few minutes, the policeman asks him, you know, are you sure you lost him here? And the drunk guy replies and says, no, I lost him in the park. And the policeman says, well, why are you searching here? And the drunk goes, well, that's where the light is. Right. So it's the idea that you're only searching for something where it's the easiest to look. <laughs> yeah. To me, that well, is where, you, where it makes sense to look. Right. And your where brain, your brain yes. doesn't think wide if you're focused on, I think this treatment might do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to look in X, Y, and Z's location exactly and you're just missing even though it's right there it's right there and you're just missing it i remember in canada we said zed all the time then i moved to the united states and they're like you need to stop that if you're gonna acculturate properly in this country also take the take z yeah but when you said zed i'm like i used to say um x y z in elementary school all the time <laughs> okay, but let me just say this. Since we're on this bandwagon slash soapbox of what's wrong with the literature, may I also add that one thing that people don't realize is that we have these categories in swallowing, I don't know why, of traditional therapies and emerging therapies. And we talk about this in the paper, which is traditional therapies somehow ended up being all the maneuvers and postures that you guys know about. Chin tuck, head turn, Masako, Mendelssohn, effortful those kinds of things. And the emerging is basically somehow everything with a device, ESTIM, EMST, lingual strengthening, right? And so what happens is somehow these people who decided we're emerging, we're not traditional, thanks very much. Um, we, the only way to know that we're better than traditional is for us to have a study where we compare the people who have traditional therapy or traditional plus the emerging. So we can say traditional is fine. However, if you add EMST or ESTEM or lingual strengthening to the standard quote, standard care, which is what the traditional is, then we'll know the effect of, you know, pushing on an air filled bulb or blowing through a tube or getting uh, electrical current in your neck, forcing your larynx to go down. However, here's the caveat. Nobody knows what traditional therapy does. So this idea that we have a standard, quote, standard therapy that everyone who, by the way, diet modification is also included in, th in traditional therapy. So the suggestion is that that traditional therapy is so standardized that if you just add the one interesting caveat or difference in this one experimental group, which is that emerging device, somehow that's going to tell you if it's better than the groups that only got the traditional. Meanwhile, if you did a study where you compare traditional therapy in one group, to traditional therapy in another group, you'd probably also find a difference because we don't know what the gosh darn doohickey heck traditional therapy does because there's been no long-term studies on traditional therapy. So every study that tries to say that we did something that is standard care or standard care plus experimental device doesn't has not defined standard care in the literature. And that's a huge and problem. And that's not fair. There are two studies. At, Which the time, at the time of writing this, were they were they compared to wait? Were they compared what? But like longer term uh, cumulative effects of a traditional rehabilitation technique. And what was a traditional rehabilitation technique? It was um, Mendelssohn. With no, but that's just one. They all in these studies where they look at emerging everyone's getting traditional some got medicines some got effortful some got masako plus diet uh plus chin sorry tuck. sorry yeah i was i was saying when you see we don't know what the gosh done do hickey traditional treatments do i i actually say when i talk about this to my students there are that that's two studies looking at medicine by gary mccullough yeah yeah he did a good job in addressing one of the plugging those gaps that we're talking about you know like we need to sit, we use all these traditional therapies and we say, go and do six weeks of this and six weeks doesn't work. Go and do eight or 10 weeks. No studies have seen. But this is an EMG study, Phoebe. I know. I don't even go into that. What I'm I saying is the design, uh, the design of that, like what you're trying to achieve there is better than what's been done anywhere for giving us some long-term indication of what these things might even do. But we don't know what they do because we never want to, nobody checked to see if they're doing the medals in the first place. 
So it could be long term of not doing a Mendelssohn the whole time. It was just the theoretical design I'm talking about. I wish you guys could see my face on Zoom right now, given her that. Girl, if you don't stop right now. We need another whole hour. You're going to have everybody, all these clinicians like, well, thanks for the last podcast. We've just quit it. You're responsible for the mass exodus of all SLPs out of clinical realm. Oh, please. At this point, they've been listening to us for three years and hearing us say, we don't know jack shit. Like I know yeah, Jack no. shit, first name Jack, last name shit. He is my neighbor. That's what they're I saying. I think we're ready. I think we're ready for like a down the path after hours podcast. Like remember <laughs> yeah. MPD where like the racy like shows came on at like two yes. AM. <laughs> we're gonna do a drunk down the hatch for real. Where where you basically do the podcast completely sloshed. I'd be he- I'd be keen on that as long as we could edit it the next day. <laughs> That's the, that goes against the point. <laughs> We wanted. We actually want to record a couple with no intention of releasing it, but just for oh, right. our own um, bribery. Our like own we need to. We need bribery. to have some dirt on each other in case anyone tries to act a fool. Be like, uh, uh-uh, uh, bitch. I got you saying so and so about so and so. I'm going for president, so I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a, you're going for president. <laughs> yeah, I don't want you to have anything on me. <laughs> too late Anything Phoebe, more Phoebe do you know how much crap I have on you right now are you kidding me yeah, hey okay guys so let's all summarize if you had to say hey listeners you guys are clinicians you guys are scientists you guys think that swallowing is the most amazing thing you should spend your life worried about what how would you what would what advice would you give them last words yeah for me just consider experience in every form what the patient is doing and what you what your actions are encouraging the patient to do or not to do whether it's you know and and think wider than just impairment level I think for me that we need to be thinking that way to cover and, and that means in both directions mm-hmm. in terms of being more risky but also covering yourself for risk you know talk about oral hygiene talk about things that that might allow the experience to be slightly richer and as, as well as safe leash um i guess i would say a couple of things npo last resort let your patients eat that's i feel like should be the gold standard and if you don't do that you have a good reason for it right and not saying that that's true for every single patient but if we really want to promote neuroplasticity and really rehab our patients in long-term meaningful ways we have to allow them to have the experience of eating I realize that that decision looks very different in acute care um, versus like an outpatient or rehab setting. But consider the fact that the decision that you make for a patient in acute care does not need to carry with them through the the course of their rehab trajectory. Um, And I think once you start getting, you know, patients out of that acute phase, we really, really, really need to be focusing on allowing them to have from a needing perspective, as much experience as possible in order to give them the sensory information that the brain needs in order to rehab itself appropriately. And sometimes we just need to take a step back and let the body do what it does best, which is rehab itself. I would say really Mm -hmm. briefly that we have to remember that we don't know how we're interacting with the system that is extremely complicated. There's a black box, we're feeding something in it, and we only hope that what comes out is beneficial. But if we're not measuring what goes in and what comes out, we have no way of inferring what the system might be doing with this information. And as long as we're not doing that, we have to be very thoughtful about taking away experiences for our own fears, Phoebe. You know you've got a problem when let's like give us the last words. Yeah, but now I want to counter last words. Okay. Like this is <laughs> you just with NPO, I'm like this I get this every time and I, I feel so uh, about it. Like in courses and stuff, it's like NPO absolutely should be a last resort. You know some of the some of the only research we have on predictors of aspiration pneumonia, tube feeding is one of those predictors. Like it does not solve the problem of aspiration pneumonia. In fact, it exacerbates the risk. And so I just, I, I, it doesn't, that's not a good reason to be, I mean, I get you, like you're saying, there are caveats in all sorts of directions, but 
do not think that by bypassing the ingestion part, you are bypassing aspiration pneumonia. And when you're talking about just then about the changing the bigger picture on things, it's like when you were talking about kids and pediatric feeding and tube feeding and getting them used to it, one of the big things to change for pediatrics when they are going from having never eaten a meal to no no structural or physiologic impairment is having them feel hunger and translate that to I need to eat like that's the stuff that we have no understanding of that either no we we do have a little bit because again in the same Kennedy Krieger thing the first thing they do is they take them from continuous feeds to bolus feeds in hopes that just the idea of feeling hungry intrinsically would make them want to put something to their mouth to solve that urge but I mean, that. like how that urge influences plasticity, how it influences performance, mm-hmm. how like, oh, there's so many factors that we just don't, we know this much. Mm-hmm. And you, th- you about- think about how many, you know, if you just reflect on how much did it take me as a child to learn, you know, yeah. I still with a five-year-old need to constantly give him snacks because otherwise he's hangry and raging he still hasn't made the connection that I'm starting to feel a little, eh, I need to eat. Like you're expecting someone who's never made that connection between eating and solving that hunger issue to just put those two things together. That's a massive part of the habilitation. Sure. And even the, you know, the experience itself, even as adults, we're constantly, um, we're constantly learning in terms of, I just, it just made me think like watch somebody who's never been to Japan eat, like sushi and and soups that have weird textures like it actually takes a little bit for them to figure out how to even eat that you know like it's different like even in those even as adults right like we have to learn how to handle new experiences new foods new textures whatever and you know you have to take that into consideration with the patient who has to relearn how to even eat macaroni and cheese again Mm. That it's going to be awkward at first and it just takes a little time to get it right. I mean, I remember, I remember the first time I ate sushi. I did not, it was like, do I just swallow it? Do I chew it? I was kind of like, it was just weird combination of textures. And now I'm like, I could eat sushi every day. Um, well, yeah, I remember the first time I ate a whole grape. Whole, a whole <laughs> grape? Is that what you said? A whole grape. Yes. That is a perfect ending. <laughs> Sour grapes. Phoebe's friend is actually her mom. <laughs> Phoebe's own experience. It's actually Phoebe. I know. Phoebe's like, what I'm saying is I'm scared of grapes. Can you help me? <laughs> what advice would you give me? He mostly has a single <laughs> grape on the table, just staring at it like, just tell me what to do. <laughs> well, guys, this was great. I'm so glad we had this podcast. Look at you guys. You're grown folks talking all smart about swallowing things. Um, and thanks for joining us, Phoebe. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye.